Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 through 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Who could ever have imagined Paul the persecutor to become Paul the proclaimer of the gospel? It's not something that would seem possible. And just to give you a little bit of a a corollary or an analogy to that, imagine someone like Osama bin Laden. He turns to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But not only that, he goes all around the world to preach the gospel. And he comes to our church. And he comes in and says, brothers and sisters, I who once persecuted Christians, I'm now here to proclaim Christ. What would you do if he came in and did that? What would you think? Wouldn't you be a little skeptical? Afraid, perhaps? Maybe thinking, wait a second, is he, is he going to bomb our church? Is he going to kill us? See, I don't think we really appreciate who Paul was, what he did, and why the churches around him were so fearful of him when they saw him. So it also gives you an idea of how amazing his conversion was. How is it possible And the only way it is possible is through what he described in chapter 1, verse 2, grace. It's grace. It's all God's grace. There's no other explanation. It's not as though somehow everything made sense to him logically by his own rationale and he suddenly turned to Christ. No, Jesus had to come and break through the hardness of his heart and the fog that was surrounding him. And when it did, it transformed who he was. 
God's grace is Paul's answer to that transformation. And it's also the same power that is before me and you. The Holy Spirit empowers us. He causes us to conquer sin and Satan, and he transforms our lives in the gospel to see truly who Jesus is, and then he empowers us to go forth to the world around us. So through Paul's life in our passage today, we're going to see, one, grace revealed through testimony, and we see that in verses 11 through 14, and secondly, grace revealed through transformation in verses 15 through 24. So we're going to first look at grace revealed through testimony in verses 11 through 14. Let's remember again that there's a a group of teachers who are trying to introduce a different gospel, as we talked about last week in the church. And one primary way they tried to do this was to undercut Paul's character, to undermine him, because they figured if you can discredit the messenger, you can discredit the message. This actually is true. Uh, Sadly, I was unloading as we moved into the building and we finally got all of our stuff into the building. I got a lot of my books brought in. And as I was unpacking all my books, I started going through them and categorizing them into sort of three categories. One was books that I'm going to put into my office. Two is books that I'm going to donate to our church library. And then three was books I'm going to throw away. And sad to say, but there were so many books I just threw away. You know what the main reason was? Because the authors of these books were either, um, they had been, they had fallen due to an abuse of authority or moral sin or some sort of false teaching. And there were so many books, stacks and stacks of them that I actually got rid of and threw into the dumpster because of those reasons. Now, it's true. Actually, if we tried to separate all of what we read and do based on someone's moral character, perfect moral character. We'd have no books to read. But it's hard. It was hard for me to actually enjoy reading a book that I once read by someone who, in some sense, I gave trust to. And then I find out that they had a secret life or they did something. And after that, I just couldn't read it anymore. So the Galatian teachers, the Jewish Christian teachers, that were coming in and preaching this different gospel, they were using a tried and true demonic tactic, which is if you can get people to believe that this person has gone completely wayward and their character is flawed, then you can get them to decide, I don't want to listen to them. I'm not going to listen to them. So it makes sense why they were so adamant at trying to disprove uh, Paul's apostleship, trying to make someone think that this guy is illegitimate and therefore his message is illegitimate. So how does Paul counteract this strategy? He does it in a couple of ways. First, he tells them, and he tells the church that he received the gospel directly from Jesus in verse 12. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. This verse just gives you the sense that Paul is distinctively trying to counteract an accusation. If you look at that verse again, if we go back to it, that verse has the letter, the word I in it. And it's, in, in Greek, I is generally assumed with the verb. But in that verse, 
if Isaiah, if we could go back to that verse, verse 12, I is is regularly emphasized. It's actually distinct grammatically. So it's emphatic, meaning Paul's making a very intentional purpose of saying, I did not receive it from any man, nor, I, nor was I, I taught it, but I received it through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And generally, Paul doesn't do that in his letters. So he's trying to really just sort of hone in on this idea that he heard this gospel from one-on-one from Jesus. He was discipled by Jesus directly because he knows, just like we all do, the concept of the telephone game. You know, he knows that uh, when you hear things through different medium and it's passed along, the message gets distorted, confused. Paul wasn't just, uh, I mean, they, they might say things like this. Paul, he wasn't there with Jesus. See, he heard his gospel from Mark, who heard it from Luke, who heard it from Peter. So how then could Paul consider himself to be an apostle at all? And how then can we then believe that his gospel is actually a right gospel? Whereas they're saying our gospel is legitimate because we heard it directly from the apostles and we're preaching the Old Testament as part of the gospel in, in, in the law as, a, as an addendum to that gospel, which comes from God as well. That sounds good. That sounds right. But Paul's saying, no, I didn't hear it from people. I heard it from Jesus. I didn't hear it from any man at all. Paul received his gospel directly from Christ. I mean, think, go back and think about Acts 9. You ever wonder how this all happened on the road to Damascus? Because we, we have a record of what Paul directly heard. And we know a few things about Paul in, in Acts. We know in Acts 7 when Stephen, one of the deacons, was being stoned to death because he was proclaiming the gospel of Christ, by the way, from the Old Testament. And as he's being stoned to death, the people are laying their garments before they're stoning Sort of, Paul becomes the garment keeper, you know, of everyone who's stoning Stephen to death. And Paul's there giving his assent to that. It was a a terrifying act, but Paul didn't care. And then on the road to Damascus, where Paul is on his way to persecute, possibly imprison, and definitely, possibly to kill Christians, he sees the risen Lord who calls him to account And suddenly the gospel is no longer a story of insurrection. It's no longer a a religious cult story for Paul. It's not another philosophy or this criminal carpenter from Nazareth who is teaching all these blasphemic lies. No, like the very scales that we hear that falls from his eyes, his spiritual scales also fell And suddenly, the gospel made sense to him. Look at what Ananias tells Paul in Acts uh, 22, 14 through 16. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. For the first time in Paul's life, 
He came to see Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And Paul's gospel was deeply personal, intimate. It wasn't just some objective fact. It was that, but it was also subjective. It became part of who he was. It became personal to him, and the fullness of God's grace became personal. Paul says to Timothy in chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And if you have ever read that verse and think, no, that's not true, Paul. You're an apostle. There's no way you're the worst of sinners. But all you need to do is read Acts, Galatians, and you see why Paul truly believes he was the worst of sinners. He meant it. He didn't just say that as a hyperbole. He really meant the idea that he was the worst of sinners. And really, objectively speaking, you could almost say, I could see that. Even as a bad sinner yourself, you could say, I see that, Paul. Actually, you are pretty bad. We see this also especially in verses 13 through 14 because he was violently opposed to the gospel of Jesus. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now think about this for a moment. If you were Paul, how would you try to counteract the, the teachings of these false teachers? How would you try to counteract their accusations, their character assassinations against Paul? How would you do it? You wouldn't defend yourself. You would generally defend yourself. You wouldn't put out there even more so how bad you really are. Like they're trying to undermine his character and he's saying, no, actually I'm worse than that. <laughs> That's that just doesn't sound like a logical, uh, typical way of trying to defend the argument that you're not worthy to be listened to. Listen to how Paul describes himself to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. In other words, if you had a shameful past and you hurt the very people that you are now standing in front of and preaching to, would you try to downplay your past? Or would you try to purposefully bring it up, every detail to everybody? And that's what Paul does. Why does he do that? Because first, he wants them to know, and he wants these Judaizers to realize by the way, these Judaizers, these so-called Jewish Christian leaders who knew the law so well, he wanted them to know that they were nothing compared to his skill in the law, which is why he said, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own people. He was trained by the leading rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. So he's trying to first say they thought they were so high up in the law, understanding it, but Paul was even more zealous. In fact, he describes himself as extremely zealous. And all you need to do is read Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 and following, and you see how zealous Paul was. He was so pious and advanced in the law that he went out to oppose anyone 
who tried to undermine his view of that law. And that should show you, at the very least, you should be able to say, you might not believe, you might not agree with him, but you get him. Like, he really is convicted about what he believes. He's doing, willing to do whatever it takes. And so, don't you think if anyone was going to preach the gospel as gospel plus Old Testament law, it would be Paul. Like, that would seem to really flow well with Paul's background. He knew the gospel because he was saved. At the same time, he was really the greatest Pharisee of his day. And so if anyone's going to preach that type of gospel, it should be Paul. Paul would do that. But yet he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that because for Paul, the gospel was about grace alone. We sang about that. We mean it. And Paul meant it. That is, when you have the gospel and it comes into your heart, it's solely by Christ and Christ alone. And everything else is secondary to that. Your life is transformed because of that reality. And we see that in verses 15 through 24. That grace reveals, always reveals transformation. The two go together. You can't have been saved by grace and then be ordinary and the same as you always were before that grace. Grace transforms. It sanctifies. It changes you. Paul, it happened for him. Look at verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. Think about that verse for a moment. Look at that verse. I had just said that Paul was called in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. He was. But what Paul came to realize is after he was saved by grace, he realized, you know what? His whole life he was called. Before he was born, God had called him by grace. It wasn't after Damascus, the Damascus road. It was way before that his life was changed, even in the midst of his rebellion and sinfulness. How many of us think of us ourselves like that as Christians, that we think we all have perhaps in our mind maybe a day where you turn to Christ? And it is true, that is the case, but before you were born, you were called, you were changed. And God used even the utter brokenness of your life, even as a rebellious sinner, he can use that for his purposes and his glory. Anyone doubt that? Remember Joseph, his life, when he's talking to his brothers at the very end? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. But it's not just what they intended. You know, Joseph had an evil heart too. He was pretty, he was a braggart. You know, he was conceited. So God had a plan to utilize even his own sinfulness to sort of coalesce with his brother's sinfulness and all of that led to this problem and that problem, this problem, that problem. God used it all for his glory and his purposes to bring about the gospel of Christ. Everything about us is providential. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 16, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. All of Paul's life, from his training to be the best Pharisee to his violence towards Christians, all of that was going to be used to proclaim the gospel of Christ to the Gentiles, to bring the gospel out from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, 
and to the ends of the earth. My friends, the greatest witness for Jesus is this person, the one who realizes they desperately need Jesus, who sees their brokenness, who has seen their rebellion against the Lord. And the reason why when someone turns to Christ who understands that, so I think we get enamored by the idea that you go to a retreat or a revival meeting and someone stands up and says, I was a drug addict before and now I'm changed. I was a drunkard and now I'm changed. I was a prostitute and now I'm changed. And we look at that and we say, wow, that's a true testimony. But my testimony, it's so plain. I, I went to church my whole life and I was pretty good. And then suddenly I decided to believe in Jesus. And then you had a revival meeting and then that's it. And we think, but it's nothing like that. The reason we think that way is because we don't understand grace and the gospel. We don't understand perhaps even our heart of how corrupt, how hideous it is, how dark it is. And if we really understand that, then you know that even when you were in that Sunday school class, there was a heart of rebellion, a heart of hardness towards the Lord. Even as you're hearing, there's no sensitivity, no, no softness about knowing Christ. The Lord uses our brokenness and our greatest witness for Jesus is when we are desperate for him. It also shows the world that Christ is truly amazing. His grace is amazing. And that's why when you share your life as a Christian to non-Christians and what the non-Christian sees is you're really well put together you know, you're prosperous, you're smart, you're good-looking. You know, they're, not re they're, they're amazed by you, but they're not amazed by Jesus. That's the problem is that when we show off only what is good about ourselves, what is right about ourselves, what is morally right, and we never share our struggles, our sin, our darkness, but yet the light of Christ has shone forth. So you're either, when you stand before other people, Christian and non-Christian, and if you only show what is good about you and are fearful about ever revealing what is dark or hard or broken, then they see only you. And you should never be surprised then that someone who is, who is not a believer looks at you and says, wow, I'd really like to, I really appreciate you, but I actually want nothing to do with your God. He doesn't seem to do anything for you. You're always the same but it's the person who happens to be broken, who sees their need. And if you think that that only belongs to the people you're giving the blessing bag to, know that you are that homeless person. You don't go to that person and say, hey, you know, you're down and out and you, you have a messed up life, you're a drug addict, so here, here's, this is for you. And then you go back and feel good about yourself. No, you say, you know what? I'm just like you. I have the same heart. Circumstances were different. I would be there in that gutter. I would be on the side of the road begging. But it's because of God's great grace. Let me tell you that story. We have to be a people who need Jesus so that we can tell people about the fact that we need Jesus. And the more Paul saw how precious grace was, the more he was drawn to Christ because he understood he needed him. Note also in verses 16, 17, I did not immediately consult with anyone, 
nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Again, this was not a gospel he was taught by other apostles in Jerusalem. He didn't learn the gospel from James and Peter and because the false, the false teachers were probably saying, hey, Paul misunderstood the apostles. Paul's saying, I actually didn't spend any time with them. <laughs> Three years he went on his own to understand, to grow. And then after three years, going to verse 18, he only spent 15 days with Peter after the three years. He's trying to make the distinction that this gospel struck him personally. And then he met with the apostles and they affirmed that gospel that was in him. And he was transformed, changed forever. There is nothing like gospel transformation. Nothing. For those of you who have done sonship before, um, and our, our group is doing this right now, we're in this week where it's called the tongue assignment. I really want to challenge you to do it. Consider this. You take one week and you don't, um, you don't lie, you don't defend yourself, you don't criticize anybody, no gossip. And so what we decided to do, one person recommended, hey, if, if we do this, take a dollar, put it into a can, and we'll donate it to hands together. I have a lot of money in that can right now. And so many others do. I mean, there's, I've been thinking, I've been, it, it's, it's funny because it's almost like fasting. You have to be very intentional about what you're saying. You think, oh, am I going to criticize someone, a politician? A, uh, you know, it's, it's really, it's really humbling. But it also makes you realize just how wicked your heart is. I mean, that's, it's just been such a, a it's been such an awareness of how much my tongue loves to sin. It loves to sin so much that I'm always thinking, I can't wait for this week to be over. Almost like fasting, you know, I can't wait to eat the food. So then I've been thinking, maybe we should do this for the whole time that we're doing it for. Sorry, sorry, group. But maybe for all four months and see how much we raise for hands. <laughs> uh, but it is a good reminder of why the gospel is so sweet. God loves us even knowing that just our tongue is like this. And one other thing is, and my heart then says, okay, I can criticize but in my heart, but as long as I don't say it. <laughs> it is so dark, so dark. But what Paul is saying is that he's been freed from the guilt and the shame of that darkness. The Bible has come alive to him. From Genesis to Revelation, we are freed from the junk of our hearts and our souls. We're freed from trying to achieve worth and value based on our merit. We're freed from our own reputation and feeling as though I need to look a certain way or achieve a certain status to be recognized as worthwhile. We don't have to fear and have worry over losing even our lives, even health in this time of, and season of a virus. Because when we have Christ, we have everything. We are fully known. He has not rejected you. You are no longer orphans, but you are sons and daughters. That's what Paul is understanding. And because of that, he is so ecstatic for the gospel of Christ. But notice it's not just Paul who's changed. 
through his testimony and his personal transformation, the community has changed. Look at verses 23 and 24. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they glorified God because of me. There is nothing like a broken sinner who recognizes their desperate need for Christ, their darkened heart, who has been pulled out of the miry pit. Their feet are set on a rock. As Psalm 40, David says, I will sing a new song. I will sing about the Savior. I will tell the world that this is what I was. I still struggle, but by grace, because of God's good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who has given himself for me, as Galatians 2.20 says, that we can now stand proclaiming. And when people see that, it is then that they glorify God, not me. If you make yourself all good and moral and righteous and you work hard and do all this because you want to present a, a, an external picture of what it means to be a Christian so that people can glorify you, it never leads to Christ being exalted. But Paul, who is being undercut and undermined by these false teachers, he doesn't take the tactic of trying to come up with a, a thousand reasons as to why he's better than them. He says, I was violent against Christians. So how in the world could someone like me ever be saved except for Jesus Christ? So you need to worship him. Don't look at me. Look at him. And that's who I've been saved from. That's what I'm telling you. That's his message. It would be a transformed community if we all gathered together and said, friends, I struggle with this sin. I, this is how I really am at home. I need prayer. I need help. Would you pray for me? Because I'm so weak. That's when the risen Savior is exalted. In this cancel culture, you can't mess up. You know, Paul would have been canceled. John Newton was a slave trader. He deserved not an ounce of grace. But he said, I'm a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior. In our culture today, he would have been canceled. No, you were a slave trader. There's nothing. We're not going to. We're not going to ever accept you into our fellowship. Thank the Lord that Jesus does not believe in cancel culture. You know, isn't that, a, that is good news that we can mess up and we always do and he doesn't cancel us. No, instead he canceled our sin by paying our debt. That's the gospel. Let us not buy into the lies of our culture and our times, but instead let's fix our eyes on the Christ who was crucified. Let me close with this story by Phil Riken. There was a man whose life was changed by the gospel. His name was Tom Papania, whose grandfather helped bring organized crime from Sicily to America. So he was in the mafia. He himself was a hard man. When he was 10 years old, during one of the many beatings he received from his father, he vowed that he would never shed a tear as long as he lived. He became a thief, 
an extortionist, a murderer. Eventually, he became the number two man in the New York Mafia. His heart was so cold that when hardened criminals looked into his eyes, they just saw nothing but death. Eventually, God began to speak into his heart, and he refused to listen. And he didn't want God or anyone to ever have power over him. So he decided to outsmart God. He figured he was probably about to die for his sins anyway, but before God had a chance to kill him, he would kill himself. And so he put a gun to his head, and then in that moment, the telephone rang. It was a man who had been inviting him to church. And just to prove that God had no power over him, he decided to go to church after all, instead of killing himself. When the service was finished, he met the minister at the back door of the church. And the minister said to him these words. He said, I have something I want to say to you, but I don't want to offend you. The eyes are the window of the soul. And when you first came in here, I looked into your eyes and all I could see was a little boy crying, wanting to be loved. By saying this, the pastor had exposed Tom Papanya's dark secret, most painful secret. And he didn't want anyone to know that he had a weakness. So he went back to the church later that night to murder the minister. And when he got to the church, he found his amazement that he couldn't go through with it. And as the two men began to talk, the minister asked him if he knew Jesus and if he needed to be born again. And Papanya just laughed and he said, Pastor, if these people in this church found out who I was, they'd throw both of us out of here. I'm probably the biggest sinner you'll ever see if you live to be a million years old. These people here don't want me. I'm a sinner. Then he started recounting all of his crimes to the pastor, and he was trying to get this pastor to back off him from being born again because he had so many crimes. He wanted to convince him that he was so bad that there is no way God would ever save him. But before he knew it, he was kneeling on the ground with 30 years of tears freely flowing down his cheeks, opening the door of his heart to Christ. And he said, I found Jesus and I've been searching for him all my life. And now that I have him, I'm not letting him go. He eventually had to pay for his crime, so he went to prison. And there in prison, God continued to work in his heart to change him. And he became an extraordinary prison evangelist where he was sharing the gospel to all these prisoners. You see, the gospel has that power when we are humbled and we see the darkness of our sin. God will never use the person who believes in the false teaching of he helps those who helps themselves. That's not in the Bible. God uses people who say, I have no ability to help myself, that I am not worthy. And if you look deep in my soul, I'm broken. But through that, God will take that person, transform him or her, show them they are loved, they are a son and daughter, and then they will be a voice proclaiming Christ to transform a community. Wherever God takes you, whether it's in prison or in San Ramon or in Africa, to the ends of the earth, God will use you. And he will change you. That's our good God. That's grace. I hope you see that. 
Let's pray together. Let's worship him. Father, it is good to be with you, to remember your kindness and your mercies are new. We just want to acknowledge that our hearts are so easily filled with our own self-righteousness and that we fail to see that we are instead in need of a God who is gracious. Every day we shower, change, put on makeup perhaps, we go to work, we stand before others, we put on our best face, one that looks good, but our tongues are quick to judge others, to criticize government officials, our neighbors, our friends, our church, our family members. We're quick to defend ourselves, quick to incite argument, to make fun of people. We have an insidious heart. And there's an enemy who is there to egg us on. But by grace, we have been saved through faith. And it transforms us, it changes us. And I pray that you would help us to realize that. We thank you for your love and kindness, O Lord. And we just worship you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.